Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome to Wood Talk for woodworkers by woodworkers. Now here are three guys who, if combined, would make one hell of a woodworker. Mark, Matt, and Shannon. All right, it's episode 146 for August 28th, 2013. On today's show, we're talking about wooden planes for the beginner, Sathafras toxicity, you gotta say it that way, by the way, Sathafras, hinges what in a bathroom vanity, choosing between festal domino models, finishing around an inlay, and how to make a tenon for a breadboard end. But before we get to all that good stuff, let's hear a quick word from our sponsor. Today's show is supported by Festool. Helping woodworkers get better results in less time and with less mess to clean up afterwards. Visit them online at festoolusa.com. All right, time to talk about what's on the bench. I'll go first. I finished up my hidden drawer, which was kind of cool. Have you been able to find it? Uh, well, I lost it. Now that I made it, I can't find the damn thing. So <laughs> how does this work? Um, but it makes yeah. you wonder how often that's actually happened. <laughs> I don't know. Like through, throughout history, you know? Yeah. Have you Damn, guys? I know seen, I put um, one in here somewhere. Like you deliver it to the customer. And- well, there's some of those where like you gotta yank this thing out. You gotta push that button. Stick your finger at a five degree angle and hit this. <laughs> you know, and then remove a magnet and it and it opens. And I'm like, jeez, that, I know I'm it's not one of these far. moldings. I just can't remember if it's the top one or the bottom. It makes sense for it to be in the bottom, yeah, but listen for the hollow off in the day. Wall. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's not quite that complicated, but. Um, just a simple drawer system built into the base, and fortunately, the way this thing is built, it's very easy to accommodate that. You could take the weight off the left-hand side, turn that left-hand part of the base into a drawer front, um, and as long as there's a structure inside to to guide the drawer, it just works perfectly. So it took a couple of days, totally unexpected, not part of the original plan, but you know that's what that's what's fun about the stuff that we do with our audiences is to to put something out there, get some feedback. And be able to make a change on the fly based on the feedback that you've been getting. Um, well, how much of on the fly was this really in the sense? Well, maybe that's not the right term I'm looking for. I, I have this image of you just standing there and just staring at it like that menacing stare where you're like, I'm going to turn you into a hidden drawer. And I just don't know how yet. Um, but you know you're what? becoming one. Most issues that come about like this are exactly like that where I'm like. 
people are, I'm not going to say complaining, but they're, they're submitting comments that are saying, hey, why don't you do this or should we do this? And I sit there and scratch my head and I'm just like, what can we do to fix this? That doesn't completely modify the first iteration that I put out there. And this wasn't like that at all. This, this design just lent itself very, very well to this hidden drawer concept. It was super easy to adapt. I just had to put a few more dados here and there, create this internal structure, and then it was done. So I was actually pleasantly surprised at how, how easy this one came together. Nice. Very yeah. nice. Now, what documents are you putting in there so we know when we come to visit which ones we can get out of there? Comic books, probably. Oh, well, in that case. <laughs> very, very important documents. <laughs> well, you know, ultimately, I have no need for a hidden drawer. Um, I'm so, telling you, M&M's. M&M's. With M&M's. That's right. Um, someone had asked me, why don't you put a drawer on the other side? Because this one was isolated to the left side. Um, why don't you put one on the other side? And there's no reason why you can't. I just was like, well, I got the point across with one. I don't even need that one. I've got a fireproof safe bolted to the floor in my house. Um, that's where my important stuff goes. I don't know what I would put in this hidden drawer that matters, but it's fun. And I enjoy doing it. I know people get a kick out of it. So I think that's funny because to me, that lends into that whole humanness thing of it has to be symmetrical. You can't have one on one side. There has to be one on the other. We yeah. need symmetry. Yeah, normally I do give into that symmetry bug, but only if I can see it from a, you know, from a vantage point. Of, of the thing just living in a room and I'm, I'm never I'm never going to see that so it doesn't bother me yeah so that's me how about you Matt well the most recent thing is uh, actually two things this past weekend I moved like 800 pounds worth of maple out of the garage and into the basement workshop mm. um, which yeah I'm still kind of in recovery from that one I didn't do it all <laughs> at once I just want to say I do have superhuman strength once in a while but that usually just has to do when somebody is going to take the last piece of pizza and I need to get across the room before they do <laughs> Pizza and power. Adrenaline kicks in. Exactly. The Hulk has nothing on me, let me tell you something. Nice. But the big thing that I did, the, the more creative portion, was uh, I have a friend who was asking, hey, could you make you know just some like little wooden hoops for us? Um, well, give me the dimensions, and I'll, I'll see what I can do. And this made me think of when she first mentioned this. It was only about two, two inches in diameter for the interior uh, uh, circle, and she went about a quarter inch thick. It reminded me of... Back in the dark days when we first started the podcast, remember, Mark, you had a uh, somebody who hired you to make some wooden rings for like a shower curtain or something like that? Oh, I was doing podcasting when that happened? I thought you were. <laughs> Maybe you brought it up as a, as an example of something that you had done in the past, but I seem to remember that being a, a, a topic of conversation. Huh. Okay, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so I was trying to think. I'm like, how did Mark do this? And I'm like, well, you know what? I've got like one of those circle cutters, the ones that has the little blade, and then it just spins around. It's not like a large diameter bit. It's just a spinning blade that um, scares the living daylights out of me. So (laughs) luckily I only needed to make three of these and uh, I just used some poplar for it and got going and it wasn't as painful as I thought, but there was like one moment where to make sure that the, the, the outside and the inside edges were nice and square. I had to like undo the, uh, the actual blade itself, drop it out, flip it so that the bevel was on the opposite side and I did have that, I guess, maybe OCD or extreme safety moment where I think I checked to make sure that it was locked in place 100 times. <laughs> so it took me longer to check for safety than it did to actually make the cut. 
Nothing wrong with that, dude. You know, after a router tap dances on your hand, you might be a little more cautious. You know? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's right up there along with the lines of even though I know uh, the blade that I have in the table saw is securely in place with the arbor nut, I still find that when I turn the saw on, I make sure I always step just enough <laughs> to the side so that just in case the yeah. blade has plenty of room to go flying past me. <laughs> I, that is one of the – I'm glad I'm not alone there. I have this like fear every time – I turn on the saw. In my mind, I play that out of what would happen if this blade just went airborne right toward my torso. Yes. And it's really gruesome to think about, but... It is. Yeah, yeah I don't know. I, and I don't know where that ever came from. It had to be from like a horror movie or something. But yeah, at the same time, there's always just that instinct. It's like... And I think I've even caught myself on video, like actually doing the sidestep. Wasn't it from the Johnny Cash movie? <laughs> Did you see that one where his brother <laughs> fell onto a table saw blade? No, I didn't see that. Yeah, I think Johnny Cash's brother, at least in this uh, movie, I'm assuming it was true, fell into a table saw and basically his chest fell into it. And whether he was pushed or what happened, I don't know. Um, and, oh. then, and then died from the injury. Oh my gosh. Well, yeah, I knew his brother died, but. Yeah. Oh. Well, anyway, sorry to bring the show down. Oh, in that case, <laughs> yeah. Well, that was that was my fun and excitement. Um, Shannon, how about you? You said that you're going to stop building completely. Is that. <laughs> my understanding i had a little little fun with words uh i, I basically have stopped building stuff so i can start building things oh, um that's a good it's a good te- technique to take whenever approaching a project you guys know that i've built a few lathes lately mm-hmm. and i'm actually in the middle of building another one right now and uh, i was working on it this weekend and just wasn't feeling it um <laughs> In fact, I even like meant to go into the shop work, uh, to do some work on Friday night and ended up going fishing instead. It was just – it was a beautiful day and it was just I, – I don't know. Just sometimes you're just not feeling the shop. And um, you know, I'll go down there and I'll kind of putz around or whatever. And I was working on this lathe and I was like, you know what? I, what I really want to do is just make, just make something stupid, stupid easy. So I stopped building my lathe so that I could build something on my lathe because I've got, you know, I've got a spring pole lathe over in the corner that works great. And I've been focusing so much on getting the actual machines or, you know, think of it in terms of getting a workbench or getting shop furniture out that you're not actually building anything. And it was, um, it was extremely therapeutic, shall we say, just to kind of set aside, you know, this thing that I would make in order to make something else in order to actually make something. And it was fun. You know, I made a mallet. And, you know, I gave a, I made a little like candy dish bowl on my spring pole lathe and it looked horrible and ugly and it will probably end up in the fireplace in about a month or so. But it was just, it was just fun. It was just something I needed to do. So that was my therapy for the, uh, for the week. Very nice. You know, I'm kind of glad to hear that. I, I do occasional throwaway projects just, just to do them. Kind of like what you just described there. It's like, it is therapeutic. You know, I'm right. just kind of getting this out of the way. It has no real purpose. It'll probably never, ever be seen outside of this room. But, man, it really does help with something about clearing the brain. I need to make more time for that. I, like, just little shop projects. Like, how long have my, my drawers and doors in the shop, have they gone without fronts on them? <laughs> <laughs> like, that's just one of those things that I want to have enough time to just putz around and, and do projects that aren't really that important, but they beautify the shop and just make things a little bit more functional in there. And I just, right now, it's just too busy. Don't have the time for it. But Yeah, well, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm seriously behind schedule now yeah. <laughs> that I've decided to do that, but still. It's good. It's it, good for your mental it, health, though. It was necessary. Yeah. 
It is. Good deal. All right. Well, let's move into what's new. We got a couple of links to share with you here. Uh, The first one comes from our forum. A couple of weeks ago, I think it was, uh, James, who's a regular in the forum and uh, I guess emails with three of us periodically, he asked if anyone was interested in an online woodworking magazine. And of course, a bunch of people chimed in and said, yes, absolutely. And the concept that he has here is for online distribution. And I like the tagline that he has here. It says, woodworking magazine for those of us with a nine to five who are in their shops from five to nine. Uh, So basically, it's uh, weekend warriors. And we're still kind of waiting to see what happens with this. It looks like it could be interesting. Um, So I'm just going to give you the link to it. You could check it out. You could subscribe so that you'll uh, basically be kept up to date for anything that's happening. And we'll see where this goes. You never know with something like this. So it looks like it could uh, have some potential. And Um, by the way, if you subscribe, you enter into a contest to win, I think it's like 10 board feet of lumber from Bell Forest and uh, or a... uh, Lee Nielsen jack plane, I want to say. Nice. So he's got some some good toys to give yeah. away, and it doesn't cost anything to subscribe. So do it. There you go. And it's at weekendwarriorwoodworking.com. So keep your eye out for that. Uh, okay, there's another one here. Let's see. It's a video, actually, that's on Vimeo. I just posted a link to this recently. Dorian Warneck is the director of this. It's a, uh, the first few minutes are, uh, it's basically like a mini documentary about a dude and his family and he likes skateboarding and it's uh, first few minutes are about skateboarding, but then it gets into his, his hobby of woodworking and uh, showing some of the things that he makes. Um, it's, it's really well done. It's a lot like we were just talking pre-show about some of these really, really good videos that you find on Vimeo that just artistically demonstrate something, whatever it is. Uh, This one happens to be a guy who makes a lot of uh, skateboards. He makes some really beautiful cutting boards. Um, And just the way it's done, one of those things that makes, I say this all the time about, uh, I forget the other guy's name that makes really great videos, but they make woodworking look cool, (laughs) which is something that's not all that easy to do. Um, So this is definitely a good video that you're going to want to check out. Yeah, because we definitely don't. Uh-uh. We, we make it no. the exact opposite. Yep, definitely we not. Go in the other direction. All we right, are the stereotype of why your your spouse always says, "Don't get into that. Don't do it." <laughs> right. Okay. And then uh, Mark sent in a link for us to check out uh, on BBC, and this is about bottle light inventor. Proud to be poor is the title. He essentially, this guy basically made lights out of bottles with water using light refraction. So you think of like a two liter bottle with the top being stuck out the roof and it's sealed so that it doesn't leak. And the you know, bottom, I don't know, 80% of the bottle is actually, it's filled with water and it protrudes into a room. And when the sun comes in, the light just reflects down and it casts a significant amount of light on an interior space. So the reason this was sent in was because it's kind of tangentially related to Lighting in odd shops like sheds, garages, places where you might not normally be able to get a lot of uh, electricity there. Um, so it, kind of interesting. I don't know if it really has any practical application for us, but um, it's something I thought that people like us might be interested in seeing. So thank you for that, Very Mark. Very cool. Yeah, neat stuff. And what's this? Ne- Why is Mateo's sweet oh, dance? I, I put this up. This is a, a video that I came across uh, today, I think. And it's... um. 
It's a future woodworker just getting <laughs> down, getting busy. He's getting down with the bad self. <laughs> it's called uh, Mateo's Sweet Dance Moves, and it's just awesome. It's just worth checking out. Dude, I saw I'm like, did I accidentally copy that in there? I didn't. Even, it's not something I would normally mention on the show. Uh, yeah, I might put that I, on my I, personal blog. I truly <laughs> laughed out loud when I watched it. It was just it was like cool. it. Yeah, the funny thing is it's like you do all this video stuff for, for a living, and I've never – like I've got all these videos and pictures of my son and uh, I do occasionally get motivated enough to take some of them and just make a quick little fun little video that will be just a great keepsake and, and thing we'll watch, you know, years from now. So, so that's what yeah. it is. Yeah. Kid's got some sweet moves. Mm-hmm. Right. Where'd you get those from? You know it. You know where. Um, <laughs> no, that's why I asked. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Not for me. Okay. Uh, let's, let's skip poll of the week. We're actually, for those who are listening on Wednesday, we're recording this early. In fact, the next few weeks, we're going to be recording Wednesday's show on Monday just because we need to. And um, I don't know. Sometimes I don't get that poll of the week up in time, so we're going to skip the poll. Uh, we do have a kickback here. And where the heck did it go? There it is. Must have kicked it across the room. <laughs> kicked it a little bit too far. Uh, this is a kickback response to a either a conversation or somebody called in or wrote in about a plane that they had found, and he's letting them know that that plane might be more valuable than he thinks it is. Hmm. Hi, I was just listening to the last Wood Talk where the guy had called in talking about some of the cheaper planes he had bought, and one of them, he said he had a Keen Cutter number 8, and uh, that may or may not be a discount uh, plane because... King Cutter uh, would outsource their manufacturing, and they had two different kinds of planes. The the first ones were just were titled KK1 through KK8. So if he has number eight, he would have a KK8, and it was manufactured by the Ohio Tool Company. So in that case, yeah, you've you've got sort of your discount brand plane. It's still modeled after the Stanley. It's still certainly a usable uh, tool. But if he has the second one, and he'll know that because it only uses a single K, so K1 through K8, that is actually manufactured by Stanley in the bedrock uh, castings. So if he has a K8, again, with a single K, he actually has a Stanley bedrock that is only different in that the lever cap says Keen Cutter instead of Stanley. Love the show, guys. Keep it up. Thanks. All right. Thanks for that. Guy with no name. Hmm. Interesting. I always huh? admire people who who know that stuff. The, yeah, the manufacturing history. <laughs> I get questions about that stuff, and I'm usually like, uh, "Go to Patrick's Blood and Gore." <laughs> yeah. That's my go-to. Also, Ch- check in the forum. <laughs> I probably have like some sort of hyper valuable plane, like sitting in in like a pool of water in my shop, and I'm like, eh, "I'm not going to restore that." <laughs> nice. <laughs> All right, let's move into our email. We've got quite a few to cover here, so let's get into it. Uh, The first one I've got here from Walter. He says, it's time I stepped up to a full-size block plane. I want a premium product for what I envision to be an every project tool and a Veritas model looks appealing. However, I've heard you guys speak the wonders of Scott Meek's wooden planes and they do look incredible. Never having worked or adjusted a wooden plane, I'm leery of committing to one. Can you please provide some points I should consider while trying to decide between the two? Now, we did help Walter offline with this. This is a couple weeks old at this point, Um, but we kind of, I think, all chimed in on this a little bit. Um, I'll be the first to say Scott Meek's planes are amazing. They're they're absolutely gorgeous wooden planes, um, but they are not what I would call beginner user-friendly. They do take some finesse to get them to work properly, and once, once you have them set up, 
they're great and they're not necessarily maintenance free either. And no plane really is, but some planes are a little bit trickier to maintain. Um, so I have one of Scott's smoothers, absolutely gorgeous product. Very, very nice. I'm still learning how to adjust it. Um, even with some experience under my belt with hand planes, um, it does take some finesse and some practice to, to get used to it. So if I think if Walter's looking for a easier entry level trip into the world of block planes that I actually think the Veritas might be the better product for him right now. I think the wooden planes, unless you have someone there who can kind of guide you through it and give you the the tips and pointers directly, or you just have a lot of time and you want to practice, um, you know, I would say I would actually recommend the, the Veritas model. Um, I will also recommend you take a look at Bloom Tool Company. And uh, do either of you have one of the Bloom Tool hand planes no played with it a few times but haven't actually pulled the trigger on one but they're nice yeah i've got one of their smoothers and i don't use it that often just because i've got uh, a couple other tools that i prefer over that one but it's really neat because it's a wooden hand plane that has some of the adjustment mechanism that you you would expect to see in a metal bodied plane so for someone like me who kind of has my brain stuck in the the metal world of, of traditional hand planes, um, I get kind of the best of both worlds with this thing. Um, the one thing you should know about it is it does take a proprietary small blade, almost looks like a razor, um, that can be sharpened but is also not too expensive to replace because it is replaceable. So uh, that might be something to look at as well if you do have a bit of a fear, but ultimately... You know, Scott's stuff is is absolutely great. He's a friend of the show, um, so we do like to to make sure we we tell people, yes, they are good products, but it is a wooden hand plane, and all the things that go along with wooden hand planes, you'll find with his products as well. Uh, yes. but, but they are very, very nice. I don't know about you guys, but I mean, he says he's stepping up to a full-size block plane. I adjust my block plane a lot. I'm constantly like fine cut, heavy cut, back and forth with the thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess maybe I, maybe I should go buy another block plane. <laughs> but um, I have a Scott Meek wooden block plane, and yeah. it is truly a thing of beauty, but it, I use it as like a small smoother. Right. More, yeah, right. Um, it does leave a finish on ingrain that I have not been able to equal with my Veritas block plane. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is. I, maybe I need to sharpen my Veritas one more or something. But um, I'm constantly making it for a heavy cut. You know, if you if you have it set really, really fine, you're trying to break the edge of something and you get that like, you know, one quarter of an angel hair pasta <laughs> piece that comes out <laughs> yeah. and you have to make like six passes to break the edge of, a, of the, the shoulder, I'll, you know, uh, advance the blade a little bit and just do it with one pass. Yeah. And then I can pull it back to doing, and I'm constantly doing that back and forth, back and forth. And that's one thing, maybe I just don't use wooden planes enough, but that is a royal pain in the butt when you, you pull out the hammer and you tap it a little bit and you make sure it's parallel and then backing it out. Yeah. You know, you got to back it beyond, you know, so it's too shallow and then back it forward again. And it's not like the whole, you know, take up the slack and the adjuster thing. It's just a very different thing. Block planes to me, maybe it's just the way I use them. They're just much more of a utility type plane that needs to adjust back and forth. Yeah, for whatever that situation calls for, you need to. And I'm sure once you're proficient with, you know, with the wooden body plane, you could do that quickly. I'm not right. there personally. I'm not there. I don't think I'll ever be as proficient as I am with a more um, traditional metal body plane. But um, some, I'm sure some people are. Um, all right, Shannon, you're up. Well, let's see. Doug <clears throat> wrote in and he said, um, apparently, some time ago. 
on the show, I mentioned wanting to get some sassafras. That sounds like something I would say. Sorry, sassafras. Yeah. sassafras. I, I assume that you got your sassafras just from like picking it out of the dumpster. That seems to be how you get a lot of this stuff. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Sassafras what? is not a. It's not really a commercial species. No one saws it, so it's one of those things where you have to like find it in your yard and or your neighbor's yard and cut it down. Um, <laughs> Something like that. You there are there are sawmills that certainly, like the mom and pop places, the guy with the wood, wood miser off the end of some dirt road, who just saws whatever happens to come into the yard. Those are the guys you go to. But uh, Doug's question is: there um, is there any concern about toxicity with sassafras? Sassafras. Sorry, sassafras. I got to get used to saying that. How's that go, Mark? Sassafras. Sassafras. Okay. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> sorry, Doug. Um, Doug and said, I read, <laughs> I read they stopped using the root oil for root beer soda when they found out that it was carcinogenic. I have about 200 board feet that I milled myself from a couple of yard trees. I've used some of it already and have read that a lot of folks still use it for various projects. I promise I won't hold you legally responsible for the answer. Um, here's the fact of the matter, Doug. Just about all wood is carcinogenic. Wood dust, I should say. Um, and that's probably what these folks are referring to. I'm sure the root oil of some sort is carcinogenic, but here's the thing. Are you going to be making a piece of furniture out of it and then like leaving it unfinished first of all, so that the oil can um, secrete. And then will you be licking that furniture to, to <laughs> take the oil off? If that's, he's using it right, he will. <laughs> that's true. So if, if that is your intended use for that piece of furniture, then maybe it's something you need to be concerned about. But most of us, uh, and when I say most of us, I mean everybody but me, applies finish to their furniture, and that finish is going to seal in that oil, at least if you've done it properly. Um, you do probably should be a little bit concerned about when you're actually building it in the wood dust, but you should be concerned about that with any species, frankly. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are plenty of exotics out there that are a heck of a lot more nasty than good old-fashioned domestic old-time sassafras. So um, I think you're good. And I think if you have 200 board feet and you're worried about using it, then maybe you could send me 100 board feet and I will take the risk for you. I'm happy to do it. You know, that's a really good point about the, the whole concern with when it comes to the health risk. It seems like the majority of the time when you look at what the possible toxicity is, it's always – Either you've breathed in the uh, the sawdust itself, or you somehow ingested the wood. It's not so much just simply right. touching it. Because well, here's, I, here's a good example. You know those um, MSDS material safety data sheets. Yes. That, like in industrial areas and things, mm -hmm. um, there is one for wood, just one. You know, there's not one for mahogany or one for maple. Yeah, they basically just gave up. And said, wood dust is carcinogenic. <laughs> There's only one MSDS for wood. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're, we're taking our lives into our hands, people. That's what makes woodworking so exciting. It's a brave new world. Hmm. Yes. I'm, lo I'm looking it up now. I want to read it. All right. Well, you, when, you, when you get to that, you, we can come back if you, if you want to share more of it. But I'm going to move on to the next question here, which came in from Pat. And Pat asked a while ago, what do I need to know to attach hidden hinges for four bathroom vanities? The wood is three-quarter inch thick Australian cypress. 
I've made the faces and anticipated a 5 eighths inch overlay. I'm not sure if I need to purchase the jigs for a Forstner bid style hinge or if there is another way. So I did a little emailing back and forth with Pat a while ago, and I just wanted to make sure that I understood what kind of bits he was going with. Because when he first mentioned uh, um, the, let's see, what was it, the, the hidden hinges, immediately my mind went to like those barrel hinges, the type where you can drill a hole and then you drop it in. And the only thing you actually see is the, the, the hinge mechanism itself. You don't see any of the hardware stuff. That was the first thing I thought of. But after a little bit of a conversation, it sounds more like Pat is talking specifically about a European-style hinge. So he was concerned about having the cup fit into the actual door frame itself. And then, of course, that would be all hidden away when he opened and closes it. So that makes more sense for why he was asking about the Forstner bit-style uh, jig that he would maybe have to purchase. So if, you, if you've ever looked at these before, I, I did a quick search over at, say, Rockler, and there are all sorts of variations of uh, concealed hinge jig systems, and they range from uh, a, a little plastic thing for like $15 all the way up to a monst- monster massive concealed jigget multi-tool rail master something, something, something for like uh, $100, and I think I saw one that was even more like $200. My answer to this was I just simply made a story stick where I marked out the uh, location of how far I want everything in and where I'm going to go ahead and and make my center mark for I know that's where I want the Forstner bit to start drilling out the material, especially for the cup itself. And then also on that story stick, I marked out where I'm going to have the screws that will help to hold everything in place. And I think that story stick probably cost me less than... Less than a penny, is that possible? Because I'm pretty sure it came off of some scrap that I had from some material before. So uh, that was just a real quick and easy way to do it. In fact, I I made a a reference to uh, the videos I did on the Walnut Buffet uh, that I I built for a friend a couple years ago. And I demonstrated my story stick method in that. And I was able to put together... Four four sets of hinges in no time at all, and like I said, it saved me a few bucks, and it was just a matter of uh, laying everything out ahead of time and going right in and taking care of it. And the nice thing is now I have this really neat story stick that I can use if I ever need to reproduce those. I'm not going anywhere near your story stick. Oh, come on. It's a fun story stick. I'll tell you a nice story. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. <laughs> that was so creepy. That, that was, was creepy. Like, Matt. it was bad enough that I had to Go say over something. Here, Mark. Sit on my lap and I'm going to tell you a story. But Matt took it to a whole new creepy level. <laughs> wow. Love it. All right. I'm speechless. Let's, uh, let's move on to Rick's question here about Festival Dominoes. A little bit cleaner for the kids in the, in the room. If, we'll take that care of that right now, mister. <laughs> he says, uh, my question is about the two available Festool Dominoes. Over here in Australia, there's a $676 price difference between the DF500, that's the smaller one, and the DF700. I won't say that they charge what they charge for them over here because you'll fall off your chair either in shock or laughter. I'm only buying one, so the price difference, while large, isn't really the deciding factor. I just want to get the right one. The domino size I would like to use about two-thirds of the time is at the top end of the DF500's capacity and the lower end of the DF700's capacity. I'd just like to ask Mark, as the only domino owner in a fine trio of woodworkers, if he thinks that the DF500 is okay for use in hardwood with the 10 millimeter bit. That's the largest one. Uh, or am I better off buying some K... 
Okay. I should have read this ahead of time. Am I better off buying <laughs> <laughs> Am I better off buying some KY and a bullet to take with me and just get the more powerful oh, wow. machine? Uh, I would just like to point out real quick before you go any further with this that it was Mark that made this really uncomfortable comment, not Matt. Yeah, well, actually, it was Rick. But um, he says, also, does the extra size and bulk of the DF700 make it harder to use? <laughs> Sorry. Shannon, settle down. Um, <laughs> uh, does the extra size and bulk make it harder to use on smaller jobs? Well, let me answer that last one first. It's a little bit bigger. So if you have, you know, the thing is, though, that is usually intended for larger work pieces. So most of the time you are not going to have any issues uh, using that on smaller work pieces. Most of the bulk is in like the body with the motor. So it's behind the the business end. Um, And that really doesn't seem to get in the way for me. But again, on that scale of project, it's usually not going to be a problem. Now, this comes up a lot. There are a lot of people who are wondering now that the DF700 is out, which one do you get? Well, here's the thing. There's a reason why the DF500 came out first. Because for the vast majority of what most of us probably build, that's the tool that we're going to use. It's it's a smaller scale series of, of joints uh, that will work for face frames. It'll work for, um, you know, standard mortise and tenon joinery for doors and drawer. Yeah, drawers. Uh, <laughs> my drawers don't have mortise and tenon joints, but if you do, good on you. Um, you know, just anything that we do with small scale furniture, uh, if you get into the things like beds, entryway doors, very large conference tables, things like that, now you're getting into territory where you might need the capacity of the DF 700. Now he brings up the thickness, but what I find to be the real defining factor between these two tools is the length of the tenant stock. The DF 500 gives you up to two inches long. So if you're dividing that between two pieces, that's only about an inch going into each workpiece. It's not very much, but that does cover quite a bit of stuff on that smaller to medium scale. Going up to the 700, you get up to five and a half inches long, so it's about two and a quarter into each workpiece. So think about the situations where you need a full two and a quarter inch depth mortise. Not that many, at least for me. Um, so it really depends on, on on the type of things that you're building. And I don't think thickness is as big of a deal because you can always stack these things. The, the way the domino works, uh, if you need something that's a little bit wider, put a quarter of an inch between the two dominoes and put them one above the other. And you'll make up for that difference in um, in thickness of the stock. All right. So I think for, you know, he says for two thirds of the time, it co- it's covered by the top end of the DF500 then it sounds like he's got it covered with the 500 unless there are definitely times, a lot of times, maybe that other third of the time, he needs something larger. That would be the reason to go with the DF700. If the other third of the time are smaller things, then I think the DF500 is going to be the choice. It sounds to me like Rick needs to have a friend purchase the DF700 and then Rick can purchase (laughs) the DF500. There you go. And then for that one third, just be like, hey, buddy, what are you doing? Can I borrow your domino? Yeah. Yeah, definitely yeah. is uh, is the way to go. So I, and I've had them both. They're both great, but I still reach for the DF500 much more often. Um, the DF700 only came up on, let's see, the platform bed was the first time where we're talking about like a, a seven inch wide, two inch thick bed rail into a giant footboard of solid wood. That was a reason to go with the DF700 uh, on that one. So for me, DF500 all the way as uh, for, I think for the average woodworker building average products, that's projects that's going to be probably the most useful well, let me ask you this if you didn't have the df 700 you still could have done 
something with the the DF five hundred on that project though. When you just probably would have taken a little more yeah, finagling. Yeah, for that particular one, I probably could have gotten away with it. I didn't use the biggest domino that was available to me. I've yet to use the largest one um, from the DF 700. Um, I'm barely just, just, you know, in the lower range of sizes available for the 700. So um, I definitely could have gotten away with just the the 500 for that project. Okay, cool. Because that is actually, I think I hit you with this question earlier. That's why I was just double checking. Like, is he making up the name Rick or because this sounds like a question I threw at you a while ago. (laughs) All right, Shannon, you're up. Let's see. Will said, I am <clears throat> building my one-year-old daughter a toy chest out of Cortison Red Oak. I did some inlay work on the front panel of some butterflies. I was looking to finish the chest with some Danish oil or something similar, but I don't want to influence the current coloring of the inlay. <laughs> so how the heck do I finish the rest of the panel without that finish screwing up slash bleeding into the inlay? I was thinking of perhaps masking off around the inlay and then shellacking the heck out of the inlay, then removing the masking and using Danish oil on the rest of the piece with hope that the shellac would keep the oil from bleeding into the inlay. A um, <clears throat> couple things. Uh, I would think that the shellac is probably going to change the color of that inlay too. Um, so you want to use a super blonde shellac first of all and probably do if you can somewhat of a test, if you've got those species of wood, um, I mean, you're going to apply something to this. It's going to penetrate into the wood and it is going to change the color of that inlay. So you need to kind of weigh, um, how much is that really going to happen? Because no matter what you're doing, you're applying penetrating finish, whether you're using shellac or Danish oil. The only way to really avoid that, I guess, would be a film finish of some kind. Um, but I don't want to get too much down that road. It's just something to think about because um, I've actually had this same question and I posed it both to Steve Lotta and to Chuck Bender at some uh, SAP from event a couple of years ago. And they both kind of looked at each other and universally said, uh, well, you, you Do avoid <laughs> the whole process in the first place. Yeah. You, you find a species that you're not going to want to do any kind of dye work or any, you know, you're going to be perfectly happy with the color of it just by applying you know, one finish. So you don't have to worry about that. Um, then they said, if that's absolutely not, you know, an issue, if you have say, and period furniture, we're using mahogany and inlay and the customer doesn't want to wait for that mahogany to get that nice deep, rich color. And you have to apply something to it. Then yes, you apply shellac to that inlay and that can result in, you know, buying a little tiny artist brush and literally painting just that inlay. Um, I would think you could mask it off, but, um, Will actually sent us a picture in his email and it's not like Nakashima butterfly, it's butterfly, butterfly. And, uh, <laughs> that would be a lot of masking. Um, and I don't know. I just think that you'd end up, um, it just would be easier probably just to grab a really fine tipped artist's paintbrush and shellac that. Um, but you know, when I first read this, I was thinking he was going to do some sort of dye or some sort of stain coat on that red oak, but he's just saying Danish oil. And, you know, I've only ever used Danish oil really on my lathe and, um, it doesn't change the color that much. Does it? I don't it's, know. What, what, what is the inlay made out of? Does he say? Uh, I don't remember. He doesn't <laughs> say. Yeah. Cause here's the thing. If it's maple, yeah, it does make a difference. It takes it from, you know, that nice blonde, mm, yeah, almost that amberish. Yeah, it takes type. it from like a holly sort of color to just yellow-ish. Right. You know, mm, so yeah. I, could, I could see why he wouldn't want to do that. 
but man, I, I, this is one of those times where I would just be like, you know, it's not, it's really not worth the effort for what he's going to have to do to try and isolate that section. Right. That's what I, I mean, because it's not so dramatic, it's not like he's applying like a, a burgundy stain or something, then obviously that would be an issue. Mm -hmm. But, um, I, I would think honestly, it would be worth taking, we'll just say that was maple taking that maple and, you know, inlaying just a square, you know, on a piece of that red oak in a, in a test board and, and trying a couple of different tests to see what you really think. Yeah. Because then you add to the fact that it's going to change color through oxidization and UV exposure anyway. Um, that maple's going to change color. It's not going to be the way you see it right now. So I don't know. I, I think the, it's a beautiful inlay. He did a fantastic job. And he's put so much work into this, and this is for his daughter and all that. I think this may be one of those things where you want to take a step back and, you know, before you jump on it. Of course, he sent us this question a while ago, and <laughs> while we answered it, I think via email, he may have already made his decision, and this is totally moot. So Yeah, yeah. And by the way, I think you said oxidization. Oh, he's, he's getting vocabulary lessons from Matt. <laughs> I think so. Do you have an inflammable bill? <laughs> Infla uh, inflammable. Inflammable. Um, inflammable. Yeah, yeah. And uh, honestly, I think this just just put the oil on there. I mean, the thing is, wood is absorbent, so it isn't exactly like you're you're doing this on like a formica surface or something that isn't going to soak material in. Even right. if he does put that shellac layer on top. I don't know that there's any guarantee that it isn't going to seep in and actually make that really crisp inlay line between the species suddenly becomes a little muddy, you know, because mm -hmm. you do have the oil uh, penetrating deep and then going under the shellac layer. So it, I don't know. It just sound, that sounds like messy business to me. Yeah. Maybe for future reference, we should just um, either avoid doing it or just wait until afterwards. And if, it, if the inlay is a little uh, proud of the surface, well, just something to hold on to. Yeah. You know, the truth is there is no great solution for that. When someone wants to right. dye an inlay and they want to make it a very significantly different color, um, whether it's pre-dyed, you still have to flush it to the surface. Or if you dye the background and then inlay, you still have to flush it to the surface. Like there's no, there's really no good logical way to get that job done. Which right. Is why and that's, that's kind of exactly what Chuck and Steve are saying. Mm -hmm. Like, Choose your species properly. Exactly. That's the only way to do it it's so tough. that you're comfortable just wiping on one finish and you're good, yeah. you know? Cool. Matt. Sweet. All right. Hey, we got the last question here, and this is from David. And David says, I'm currently building my first real furniture project, a, a coffee table. The ta top and legs will be made from walnut, and I want to make breadboard ends from cherry for two reasons. I think they look cool and to add a wee bit more total length to the top. So my question is, I'm concerned about the edges where the table ends and the breadboard begins. I fear that I will not be able to clean up the tenon in the tabletop due to me not having a rabbit plane or any other cool tool that Shannon has. Shannon. Gosh, Shannon, see what kind of pressure that you're putting on these poor guys. You and your tools. Oh, well, you, look who's talking, Mr. Festival Domino. <laughs> get the, uh... What? Everybody's got... Which domino shall I use today? Everybody's yeah, got exactly. one of those. Come so on. anyways, let's go ahead with David's question here. Now, he says he happens to have um, a number of, of planes, so a four, five, seven. He says he has a block plane and what he considers to be a standard power tool set, which is like a table saw, bandsaw, router, etc. He's asking, would a straight edge and, say, a router work? Or how about a chamfer on both edges where they meet 
to not hide the joint, but say accent it. And he says he's really concerned because he's never built anything to date that will require actual mortise and tenon joinery. And also, uh, this is my first true project other than shelves and candle holders. I can't mess it up because he's worried his fiance won't allow him to buy more tools and lumber if it's really, really bad. So, actually, See, I you're going to have to fix that now before that wedding kicks in. Assert yourself now, man. <laughs> oh, so good. that you know Marital what you've advice lost from once Shannon. you get married. <laughs> <laughs> so, what I ended up responding to, to, to David is I, I told him, you know, I said, well, hey, you don't have to have a fancy rabbit plane or even a shoulder plane to get good tight joints, say, on the breadboard ends. And the fact that he mentioned using, say, a straight edge and a router. Personally, myself, um, I have a project that I did that I have breadboard ends on, and that's exactly how I, I did those projects. This was before I, I really delved into the world of uh, hand tools. And I'm I, very proud of the results that I got from it. In fact, it reminded me of another discussion in the past that we had where I think somebody was worried about um, getting a miter and would they have to use uh, a shooting board to get really super tight on there. And you know, we were thinking, well, number one, if you just take the time to set up your, your power tools the right way and, and work with those a little bit, you will get dead-on accurate results from it. So don't be afraid to use your power tools to get dead-on accurate joinery from them. I'm, I'm sure plenty of professional shops do exactly that. Mm-hmm. But anyways, though, so for that first part about the straight edge and a router, like I said, I, I've done it in the past. And one one thing I would suggest, this has always worked for me, is – I often will hog away most of the material, and then when I get really close to that final line, like, you know, we're talking like one sixteenth of an inch, maybe a 32nd of an inch, more like the 32nd of an inch, I like to come in there and make that last pass, my ultra-fine pass, Mm -hmm. so I'm only removing a tiny bit of material, and it really gives me a nice sharp line on my shoulders, Um, and so I've, I've gotten really good results from it. One more thing I might mention is he had suggested maybe doing some sort of chamfer at the joint line to actually accentuate it. This is also another good idea. We might actually kind of you know turn our nose up to it a little bit because sometimes it gives a, the piece of furniture a little bit of a manufactured look in the sense of like mass production. Hmm. But it is, and I've seen this in several of the, the big magazines, like this is something that you can use to kind of maybe help take care of a, a joinery technique or a joint that – you might have to adjust just a little bit here or there, and it helps to kind of hide the fact that the joinery is off a little bit because now you've got like these shadow lines and everything that are – if you've done it the right way, it should look good. If you've done it really, really bad, I don't think there's much hope for you at all <laughs> hiding that other than just rebuilding it. It can look good. I mean it kind of uh, – you see it in a lot of rustic pieces where the joints mm-hmm. are chamfered, and you know the problem with it is in practical – for practical purposes, it's not great because it's a great place for dust to settle into. <laughs> right. right. You know, and it's difficult to <laughs> – well, but that out. dust will then level out the surface eventually. Oh, there you go. So. There you go. That's great. That's fantastic. A nice actually. filler. Um, yeah. Can I add something to to this, Matt? Um, yeah. Go for it. I'm about Except to, if I don't like it, unless it's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> in which case, uh, um, <laughs> it contradicts at, me. We're actually going to be doing a breadboard edge on the green and green blanket chest that we're doing right now, um, and the way that I'm going to do it is probably to use a rabbiting bit. So, okay. so mm-hmm. this way you're just following the already established square edge and you just lower the bit down to however much you want it to be, um, make a pass on both sides and you've got a perfectly centered tenon left on the end. Um, now that's assuming you're okay with only getting maybe a half inch long tenon because those rabbiting bits are limited in how, how deep they can go. Uh, even if you just use the straight bit for this, um, both will work. If you, if you use the rabbiting bit, you don't need a guide because it's uh, bearing guided 
if you have a straight bit, you will need a guide to guide your router. But one thing I'll add to the the concept that you were talking about, Matt, is if you've got like a good old-fashioned cutting gauge, go ahead and use that on the end grain. Mark it out, lay out that line, and scribe across the end grain. And that and just make sure your router bit comes up and just kisses that line. And that, just like it does in hand tool work, that's going to give you a very effective line to uh, to, to have a tear-out free cut when it's all said and done. I, I do that all the time with, with uh, power tools and end grain cuts. If I can, I try to use a, a cutting gauge first to, to slice that grain, and it just makes the results that much better. That's a really good point because a lot of the, you know, a lot of people won't even think anything about that. They'll be like, "Well, oh, my bit is nice and sharp. It'll take care of it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, taking the little extra time ahead of time to score the line and at least get those top fibers severed, yeah. it can really save you a lot of work later on, even if you bungle the rest of it. At least yeah. those, those very top fibers look pretty darn good and nice and clean. One thing I will say with, with the that whole rabbiting thing, uh, as you were mentioning, I'm like, you know, I've done that in the past too. And, and as I kind of mentioned the thing where I, I sneak up on that last portion, even though it has a, a, a bit on it to uh, guide me through it, sometimes I'll still use just a little bit of something to keep that bit far enough away and then bring it in for that final pass. So I think we're, we're on the same page. Sweet. You know, awesome. I actually I actually did this way back when, when I had a router, um, <laughs> ironically, when I was building my Rubo workbench. Um, there's a video somewhere on my site, I think when I was installing the Invice, where I had to put that big, ginormous end cap on the end of the Rubo. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just used a straight edge and a router, and it worked just great. There you go. Nice. All right. Uh, let's get into a few iTunes reviews. If you want to leave us a review on iTunes, you can do that. Just go to the iTunes store, click on Ratings and Reviews, and you can ask Shannon if he'll let you borrow one of his five lathes. <laughs> it's only yes. five? <laughs> He's up to five now. I've counted. Uh, we'd like to thank Papa Rism and Fish37, who had this to say. He says, doing as I'm told, like I had a choice. It can only be a five-star review. I love the show, and thanks for keeping me entertained while I make a long commute to work. I watch all your shows individually and really like the mashup of you all. By the way, Mark, I ordered your new book and can't wait to get it. Thank you for the great shows, and thank you, Fish37, for uh, for listening and pre-ordering the book. I appreciate that. Okay, today's show, remember, is sponsored by Festool at FestoolUSA.com. Talked a lot about them today. Not because they're a sponsor, but yeah, because no, we got no, a, Absolutely, that's not the reason we talked about them. Because <laughs> we got a legitimate question about them. Um, also, I'd like to mention that if you want to support the show, we always appreciate the help. You could sign up for a recurring donation or do just a one-time donation at woodtalkshow.com. Look in the left-hand column and you'll see links for that. And we'd like to thank Jeffrey R. for helping us out in that way. So thanks a lot, Jeff. You the man, Jeff. Uh, hope you don't mind Absolutely. us calling you Jeff, but uh, <laughs> I feel like we're close now. So, uh, so Matt, how about you give them the contact info and we'll get out of here. Oh, hey, no problem at all. You know what? If you have any comments, questions, maybe a topic suggestion, or you're in need of a lathe and need to get, borrow one from Shannon, you can contact him at his new business, which is 55Lathe, L-A-T-H-E, <laughs> and you'll be able to uh, maybe get one of those in your rental area near you. Uh, there is some some shipping and handling charges there. But it, anyway, so if you want to get a hold of us, don't forget that you can leave us a voicemail on Skype. Our username is Online. Our voicemail line, 623-242-5180, where you could also contact us like our voicemail person today, who was telling me now that I probably threw out a very expensive plane and I'm going to kick myself <laughs> once I'm off the air. You can email us at woodtalkonline at gmail.com or leave us a comment on our Wood Talk Facebook page. And if you're ever looking for the show notes or downloads from today's show or previous episodes, you're going to find those over at woodtalkshow.com. Very nice. All right. Well, I got to tell you guys, I got a, uh, a hot date with... Plants versus zombies too, so I gotta get going. Sweet. Right I 
I've got a hot date with a couch. <laughs> that sounds good. All right. Have a great woodworking week, everybody, and we'll catch you next time. See ya. This podcast is part of the Frog Pants Studios Network. For more information about this and other shows, visit frogpants.com. Audio program so good, it's like you're there. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.